10, verse 46, as Jesus is coming to Jericho, where he meets this blind man named Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus starts on page 847 of your pew Bible. You've got your own Bible. That's always better. And there's cards in the pew and pens there if you take some notes. Help expand the wisdom of God in your heart, your mind, your soul. I want to start our look at this text this morning with verse 51, however, which you heard read. Um, I'm not going to read through the Bartimaeus story again. We're going to talk about it and use it to jump off to everything else we're looking at. We are going to look at this verse where Jesus asks a very strange question. You ready? He says to him, what do you want me to do? I mean, the guy is a beggar and he's blind. And because of that, in Hebrew culture, uh, he's an outcast, which means in our world, nobody likes him. No one likes him because he's blind. Uh, blind people are considered to be two things. They are they're unclean, according to the book of Leviticus. They can't go into the fullness of the communal worship of Israel. They're, they're like lepers. Just you can't catch it. But because they're like lepers, uh, there's obviously something they did to deserve this. It's a sign of their sin, people assume, because in Deuteronomy, it says that when the people of Israel reject God, he will curse them with blindness. The question is, you know, what does it really mean to be blind? Is Bartimaeus actually blind? Or can he just not see with his eyes? It sounds like he knows who Jesus is. Son of David. Have mercy. That's the right prayer. And, and so he's not spiritually blind. His heart is not blind. He sees what he needs to do. He needs to go to Jesus. And he does. He goes to Jesus. And then Jesus says, so what do you want? As if it's not obvious. Right? Well, sir, I'd like to see. Well, but, but sir, you do see. Oh, you mean your eyes then? Yeah? But that's, he, he makes him say that. Uh, what do you want me to do for you? And while I obviously that's answered, restore my sight in the text, I want to know what your answer is. Because Jesus says the same thing to you. You're not blind. You see Jesus. You're not deaf. You've heard his word. You're not a leper. You're clean. You're not mute. Words have been put into your mouth. So what do you want them to do? Now, you're crying out, have mercy, have mercy every week. Lord, have mercy upon us. How? That answer, or more, Jesus saying, no, I really want you to ask, is what the rest of what goes on is going to be about. In fact, we can even make the case is the reason Jerusalem rejects them is because they refuse to ask God for anything. They've forgotten how to pray. And so this whole section today is going to be about learning how to pray. Knowing if I'm going to pray, I have to pray for something. And then if I'm going to pray for something, don't I want it to be good right? and not bad? So that's where we're going to start, but we're going to, we're going to creep back a little bit now, go up the page to verses 44 and 45 of, the previous, or of, of that chapter, the previous section, 
Or Jesus says to his disciples, after foretelling his death for a third time, and nonetheless having his disciples still have an argument about who gets to be greatest, he says to them, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's not the first time Jesus has said something like, the first will be last, and the last will be first. Or much earlier in the text, he who saves his life will lose it. But he who loses his life will save it. Now, all of this is a running riddle leading us toward prayer, but I think it's easy to cut through the riddle with some of the other things Jesus says around the last will be first, and the clearances of, of these are, take up your cross and follow Jesus. First will be last, last will be first. We're all going to get crucified by God. We're all going to be put in the ground for what we deserve. So... Stand up. Get ready for it. You're going to die someday. Don't run. Run to it. I'm not saying jump in front of a car. I'm saying when there's no choice. Hey, this is a good day. This is the reason I believed all these years. It's for this day that I'm going to die. So, so owning your death is part of this. Being last who are first and first who are last. Carrying your own cross following Jesus, but now you've carried your cross after Jesus, and where does he go? Next verse, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom. So you think you're serving all this time, carrying your cross along, along, and then you get to a spot, and you turn around, and Jesus says, now give me that cross. He puts the cross in the ground, he says, now watch, and he gets nailed to it. You thought he was carrying his own cross that whole time. No, he was carrying your cross. So pick it up. Because it ends with an empty tomb. That's why I can say, dive into your tomb. It's just a rest. You're tired, right? Ready for a pause? That day's coming. You can go to sleep. Wake up, and you're going to feel good when you wake up from that one. We could recover some of this, I think, as a people. I certainly can. I don't have enough of this joy just all the time. Dear Jesus, give me it to me. Please give it to me. Um, so, the other phrase that is good for last will be first and first will be last uh, is what does it gain you to achieve everything you ever wanted in this life and then burn in hell for it the rest of eternity? What good's that? And it's really going to put to the test well, are you a Herodian? Or are you a Pharisee a little bit? Are you a scoffer? The scoffer's going to scoff at that. He's not even going to care. He's not going to bother. What do you mean, lose my soul? I don't even have one. I'm just made of chemicals. Big bang, blah, blah, blah. Scoffing at Jesus. What does it get you? Nothing is what it gets you. What does Jesus give you? Everything. He gives you everything? He just said, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Now, of course, Bartimaeus says, give me my sight. And then Jesus says, there's your sight, right? Let's go back to that text. Verse 52. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him 
on the way. What way does he go? Go your way. Okay, where are you going? After you. Because his faith has made him alive now. That word translated as well can be translated as gets healthy, recovers. It can also mean like salvation. It's the same word, like for Jesus saves us. So he says, your faith has saved, healed, made you well. And this is the joy of reality for you under Christ now. Indeed, the faith you have in Jesus, which you don't even know where it comes from, is just in you. It, in fact, means you're healthy forever. Now, what do I mean by that when I say healthy? What do I mean when I say blind? Am I just talking about this life? Of course not. I'm really talking about the next life. But remember how God said, Jesus said just a little bit ago, Wednesday night, if you lose house, home, wife, children, in this life, you're going to get it all back in this life. And then more in the life to come. As long as it's in Christ's name that these things are happening to you, that you're sacrificing, that you're sharing, that you're walking in the word of God, whatever you lose isn't really lost. And that's the secret of contentment there, that what you have today is exactly what you need. And what you need is good, and good is better than great. Because good is what God does, and great is what man thinks he is. God makes us better than great by making us good again in Christ. So, go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is what's going to lead all the way to the end of our text today. It's a big kind of sandwich moment about prayer. And about faith's relationship to prayer. And to be very forward on this, um, this is a section of the Bible that I think most Lutherans, when we get to it, most preachers, when we get to it, we spend most of our time making sure you don't believe it too much. You can believe it a little bit, but not too much. Because if you believe it too much, then you might be like those people who think that if they pray a lot and give money to the church, God will give them answers. Or if they pray a lot and do a whole bunch of good works to prove themselves to God, they'll get a magical response. We're concerned that you might hear us saying, God answers prayer for miracles, and then you're going to go and pray for a miracle. And then not get it, because you were praying in a selfish way. And then you're going to think it's God's fault and there's no God. We want to stop that from happening, so we ignore this text. And it was doubled down difficult because the charismatics, the American evangelicals, you call them what you want, American Protestantism, it's kind of all one cloth. You can go into those churches and you'll find them saying things like, you know, you come to our church, you live for Jesus, your life's going to get better. Health, wealth, influence. God only blesses his sons, and blessings are only things we think are good. Never blindness, that wouldn't be it. Right? You see where this is going? How, how it becomes about what I can get, and it sounds a whole lot like Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians at a certain point. And so Lutherans are like, well, not that, not that. But, but the problem is, and we do this a lot as Lutherans, because a Baptist uses a verse to teach false doctrine, we don't use the verse anymore. Someone might be confused by it. Right? I could say it, and they'd think I meant what the Baptist said, and that wouldn't be good, so we won't say it. And over 500 years, we've lost a lot of the Bible. That way. And this section is going to end with one of those, one of those sections. And, and I want you to grab it today. Hard. Uh, I really don't care what miracle you pray for today. As long as you understand how Jesus says yes. 
And that's what I'm going to try to teach you. Because the thing is, you ask Jesus for it, the answer is yes. It's just perspective matters a lot. Where are you? When are you? How do you get it? Those things matter a lot. So Bartimaeus goes on his way following Jesus into Jerusalem, where Jesus has been headed for quite a while. Three times he said, I'm going to die here. No one really has understood that, but he's not in hiding. He's not stopping. And he keeps surprising everyone. The word, word marvelous or marveling is going to show up here again. Everyone's flabbergasted. They're shocked by Jesus. They don't understand what he's doing. And the thing they understand the least is his plan to take your cross and die for you. And so he, he enters into Jerusalem, though, to have this happen, but not as quite what anyone would expect. He goes and makes a very bold claim. He claims to be the son of David by what he does and how he enters into Jerusalem. Uh, before I talk about the donkey, which if you were at the first service, this is round two with the donkey. It's a tough idea. What is this donkey? Um, but uh, hopefully this will help you put together what you heard at the first service. Um, if you want to ever listen to any of this again, uh, you can always listen to it online at sp815.org, our website. And so when we go into the donkey talk, right, if it's like, what was that? You can go back. Right before the donkey talk, though, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem with crowds and crowds and crowds. It seems like he wins. It's a great, great triumph. But I want to tell you a story from history. Quite a while before this, a couple hundred years before this, uh, Jerusalem was under the sway of, of Persia. But Persia had really corrupted over time and was in the process of collapsing. And there was a small barbaric kingdom in the north that had been preparing for some time to destroy Persia because they didn't like each other and Persia had attacked them on their homeland uh, sometime before that. This area is called Greece. It wasn't a country then, but it was a people. And up in the Macedonian part of Greece, a guy named Philip the Macedonian had been preparing to punch Persia in the nose for some time. He's quite a guy, one eye, big old belly, and you know, kind of scary, all that. But he dies. He has a heart attack or something. And his son, who's like 19, everyone's like, well, we'll follow you. And Alex is like, okay, let's go. And, and Alexander doesn't just go into Persia. He conquers all the way to Babylon. He goes down to Egypt, and you better believe he shows up at Jerusalem too. Alexander the, the Good? Good is better than great. Uh, Alexander the Great is coming toward Jerusalem, and the high priest of the time, I don't have his name written down, but the high priest of the time, Jebus or something like that, would you believe he knew enough about the Bible, Hezekiah, that he went into the temple and said, what should we do? We're all going to die. And he gets an answer. I don't know from the history if it's from the high priest or the Urim and Thummim. I can never say it right. Urim and Thummim. If those are still in use. But the answer is this. Open the gates. March out in all your priestly vestments and welcome your conqueror. So the priests all do that. And what happens? Alexander the Great, greatest military commander in the history of the world, unless Genghis Khan is better, you can pick the fight. I don't care. But Alexander the Great, he's as top as it gets. He's coming to Jerusalem, and here comes this procession of priests with all their funny clothing. They don't look like Greeks either, these Jews. They look weird. They got stuff hanging down everywhere. The high priest has this funny-looking hat that's got chains hanging down with a big golden plate covering half of his face. And it says on it, Yahweh. Right there. 
Yahweh. And here he comes. Alexander sees this, and he falls down on his face and bows before the high priest and asks for a blessing. And then he follows the priest back into the temple, and he offers sacrifices to God. And then he leaves Jerusalem as the king of Jerusalem. The priests went out to meet the great man. They don't go out to meet Jesus. This is not a triumph at all. This is a mob. At least that's how the authorities see it. So, in the middle of this mob is a guy. Are you ready? I'm not cussing. You ready? Is a guy on a jackass. An actual special name for a certain type of animal. And it's what we used to call them until it became something different. Now that word means something completely different. But where did jack and jackass come from? Do you, you know? You ever thought about it? You ever heard the phrase jack of all trades? Guess what a jackass is? It's something you can ride that can do a bunch of other stuff too. You know, you can put giant bags of heavy stuff on your, your war horse if you want to. You're, you're spending a lot of money to move some bags around. War horse, I mean, that's like buying a, a big old Lincoln town car or something. You know, it's just 70,000, 80,000 bucks. But, but, but your average donkey, you're looking more like at that 18 to 25 range for what we got going on right now. Now, this particular type of donkey, the jackass, though, it's a little more valuable than the average mount uh, because it's been bred to be the best that it can be at what it does. Which all of us are like, what's, what's that? Well, you have cars. <laughs> so it doesn't matter anymore. But back in the day, when you just needed an animal to carry it, lots and lots of heavy stuff from you on a three-day walk. Well, they took the horses and they made them smaller. Uh, not to pet them and put them on the couch and call them boo-boos. Right? Uh, but, but to have them work better. Right? But just like what happens when you overbreed a purebred dog, what happens? You start to lose elements of its abilities, right? It got really good at smelling, but thing can't see now, right? So, so you, you give and you take as you go. Uh, the problem with, with the, the jackass, if, if I'm getting this right, pretty complicated again, but it can't breed. So when you buy one, you can't make more, which is kind of the idea behind buying a cow or a donkey or a sheep in the ancient world. Like you're planning to make more. It's an expensive investment. So you want this, this jack-of-all-trades donkey, you've got you to pay a little more for the special breeding, and its lack of ability is what makes it what's so valuable. Its pure breeding is really what they're after. And so then Jesus uh, is not only going to sit upon one of these animals, not just a donkey, right? Uh, not just uh, a, uh, what's the word now? A, uh, it's not mule. Hold on, let's find it. Not just a donkey. Um, not just a foal. Not just a mule. In fact, here, here's a thing to think about. What is a foal? Is it a donkey or a horse? Ah, it's both. In the ancient world, they didn't distinguish. Like there's, there's things you ride that are called mounts. And that's, in fact, what Mark calls this thing. He doesn't call it a donkey or a foal, anything else. He calls it a mount. 
You have to go back to Zechariah 9 to get this bit about the rest of it. Let's do that real quick here. Zechariah 9 is on page 797. And as much as it's going to clarify, it's going to, it's going to cause a little bit of a challenge. And here's where, let me, let me have you take out a piece of paper if you don't. I had to just write down like three things to make this verse make sense. Okay? I want you to see it in front of you. I'm going to, I'm going to say it, but I want you to see it. So it says in uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there's the prophecy about this mount that Jesus is going to ride, but it's called three different things. And this is how we know about the pure breeding aspect of this from the Hebrew thinking. So that first word there, mounted on a donkey, well, that's, that's the normal word for donkey. That's, in fact, right. The second word there, on a colt, that's the word that I've been saying, you know, jack of all trades, um, you know, don't be a donkey, right? Uh, that's the special word. And that word in Hebrew is ayer. And if we want to not say jack of all trades and get caught, you know, with, with potty mouth, you can say purebred, because that's what they mean, Okay. And then the foal of a donkey, right, uh, is going to be uh, the son of a purebred that can still breed. Okay? So what makes this difficult is the thing that it says Jesus is going to sit on is the one in the middle. It's not the first or the last. It's dead center. The first is the donkey. The last is a donkey that has been purebred down to almost being this, this uh, purebred, right? But now we have the one who is completely purebred, and then on top of that has never been sat on. That's that colt in the middle. So if you circle that colt thing and see that it, it means both the other words in ascending categories. So you have this one thing that's very special, you got this other thing that's kind of like it, and you got this big thing that has many differences. And then Mark uses the word for the big thing with many differences. That's, that's interesting. In fact, he uses a bigger word. He doesn't even use the word donkey. What's the, what's the meat in this? Where do you get, get out of this? Two things. Uh, first, so when Jesus wants to look like the son of David, riding on a mount like Solomon did to enter into the, his kingdom, it's very evident he's trying to look like Solomon, but Solomon just rode a mount, not one of these. Why does Jesus call one of these purebreds to ride? Why does the true son of David ride a purebred? You see this? Is he not the lamb without spot or blemish himself? Is this not a symbol of who he is? It's the perfect mount of all things. In fact, it is the end and the beginning. This mount has no future, but the one on it sure does, even though his end is soon. There's all sorts of theology going on there that you can dwell on, ponder, pray about. But here's the other one that I, I love this one. So the thing about a even a, a jack-of-all-trades donkey that's with its mother that no one's ever sat upon, as valuable as it might be, guess what that animal still is? Wild. It's never been broken. Isn't it funny we've got to break an animal to make it work? Weird. This one's never been broken. Jesus doesn't break it either. He just sits on it. How do you do that? 
Oh, yeah, but you see, you see this guy. <laughs> Who is this guy? Dear, dear, dear heavens. And yes, dear heavens indeed. All right, so, so coming back then to the triumphal entry, here he is making all of these symbolic claims that are largely lost on us because we don't use donkeys anymore. But for the people there, there's no question what is going on as he goes into Jerusalem, they, they take off their clothes, they throw them on the ground, they grab these reeds, and John tells us palm branches, and they lay them on the ground. Uh, all of that more about a completely different time of year, usually. Uh, the palm branches go with the festival of tabernacles, which is in the, the fall. It's a harvest festival. This is the festival of Passover, which is about bringing the lamb to sacrifice. But there's all these palm branches being laid on the ground for Jesus to walk up. And there's some history that explains this too. Uh, there was a time between the first temple and the second temple. The second temple's made, but has not you know, come to its fullness yet. In which uh, there is a, a, a profaning of the temple by descendants of Alexander the Great. And they aren't able to have Passover on a certain year. There's a year where they can't do it. Well, that means you're not a Christian anymore is what that means to their minds. And let's go back and make atonement, go back and repent of this. So when they finally, under Judas Maccabeus, get the temple back, they go back and they purify the temple, and they do it by having Passover during the Festival of Booths. And so you get this merging, like Christmas trees at Easter, but it got stuck and it stayed that way. And so here comes Jesus, and what's he here to do? What do they think he's here to do? What's he been saying he's here to do? Purify the temple. Oh, so it's just like Judas Maccabeus of old. Yep. Got a mob. Got a king on a mount. The priests don't like who he is. In they are going, right? Singing and shouting. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So I... The other gospel writers, they, they just kind of smash together Sunday and Monday a little bit here. Um, they push the story into one story. He goes straight into the temple and then cleanses the temple. But in Mark, you got this, you got this very human Jesus. He gets into the temple and, and it's late. So you kind of have two options for what Jesus looks around and decides. And your options are it's late and Jesus is tired. Or it's late and there's just not that many people around. And he's what he's going to do next, he, he wants you to see. No. He goes home, he comes back, but on the way back, the next morning, something else happens. Story sandwiches. Right? And this fig tree is its own sandwich. We're going to have meat cleaning the temple in the middle of it and more fig tree on the other side. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus gets hungry. Yeah, he does. Uh, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him. <laughs> and aren't you supposed to not curse things, right? Like, like, what good does it do you when you stub your toe to say, you know, darn sidewalk? Like, you're cursing the sidewalk. Like, what good is that? Does it, does it actually change the sidewalk? Um, does it bring hellfire at the last day? Maybe it does. Uh, or, or does it make you feel better? Not usually, right? Usually 
you just you get worse out of this. So what's going on here? Is Jesus just throwing a tantrum? And, and I, don't, I don't think so at all. He's intending to teach something to everyone. And so in one sense, you kind of got to know, he knows there's no, there's no fruit on this tree. Because it's not the season for faith. So either he's a complete idiot. And again, he is kind of a madman in Mark. There's a little bit of that. So you know, maybe he doesn't know it's not the season for figs, or, or he's just being weird, or maybe he knows just fine, and he's making a point. And there is one little bit of uh, history argument, I, I don't, with what I read, know who's right, as they argue, um, about when figs grow in Israel. And apparently there, there can be or are two seasons. Uh, and in one of the seasons, you're more likely to get these little tiny inedible types of figs. Um, so you don't really want to eat those. Uh, and then in, in the other season, that's like your farming season. You're going to harvest these figs. These are the good, plump, juicy ones. Probably not like the hybrid stuff we have today. But, but good, good stuff. This is your sweetener a lot of the time. And so uh, he goes, and, and so some say that the tree, he knew it was going to have bad fruit on it. Which is really interesting then. If you think of Jesus knows right now, this tree doesn't have fruit I can eat on it. So I'm going to go tell a story about bad fruit. And he gets to the tree, and because he's a man and has veiled his mind, God the Father says, yeah, you are. You're going to tell a story about no fruit, which is, I don't know which is worse, bad fruit or no fruit. I throw the bad fruit out usually, right? But I think no fruit might be better. Interesting about that, right? So, so he goes and he doesn't find any fruit. And then he just says, well, look, what do you do with a tree that even in the season where it's supposed to produce bad stuff has nothing? Why let it take up the soil? You kill it. That's what a good farmer's going to do that, right? You pull the weeds out. So, so get rid of this weed. May no one ever eat from you again. Now, nothing's happened other than him saying that, though. And just like that, we're at Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, verse 15. So story sandwich, we'll come back to the fig tree. Um, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so maybe the night before, it was, it was after hours, so the bank's closed. But now he comes back and the bank's open. There's a big crowd at the bank getting their money, because on the other side of the bank is the rest of the bazaar, where they can buy their animals for sacrifice. This is the temple of the, or the court of the Gentiles in the temple of Herod. There were three courts, court of the men, court of the women, court of the Gentiles. Gentiles can't go in where the women can go, women can't go in where the men can go, men can't go in where the priests can go, priests can't go in where the high priest can go. High priest might die when he does it, but we got one who's coming, Jesus, right, who, who can do it and rise from the dead. So it all makes sense, but now the court of the Gentiles is a market for the people who are coming to make sacrifices, that would not be the Gentiles to exchange their money with Caesar's image on it, that would be to any Jew an idol, for the temple shekel, money with no image on it, that would be a fair rate of exchange that then they can use to buy the holy animals being sold by the priests and Levites, not by anyone else. This is a full monopoly. And they're running the scales in every single way, but on top of that, why are they even running scales? 
Yes, you want to provide animals for those who travel from Greece to make their sacrifices. Very pious of you. One thing I've learned, though, about pious ideas is that a pious idea that's mostly right and a little wrong today, 80 years from now, is a lot wrong. I'll give you one. Sex outside of marriage won't change anything. Divorce won't change anything. 2008. Homosexual marriage won't change anything. Hmm. The air just keeps going, though, doesn't it? It's, 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 not, it's not a line. It's, it's an angle, and it's opening up. And so what's opened up in the court of the Gentiles is they're so busy buying and selling to increase the profit of their own little system that the court of the Gentiles doesn't have room for any Gentiles. Now, I, I want to take us to Isaiah Chapter 56, I believe. This is on page 616. Chapter 56. Oh, there's, there's my, my as Jesus Christ lives. Unfortunately, I have misplaced the note card that has this on it. So, I'll have you turn back to Mark, and I'll just tell you, because it's there. You can Google it later. You'll find it. Um, my house, actually, someone can find it right now. Let's, let's do this together. This is easy, right? Um, it's in the footnotes on your Bible, not my Bible. So, verse 7. Verse 7 of 56? Yes. Isaiah 56, verse 7. Thank you, my beloved. Um, this is the verse that Jesus is going to quote. Uh, yeah, there it is. These I will bring to my holy mountain. What are these? Go back to verse 6. The foreigners who join themselves to Jesus. The foreigners who believe in Jesus I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar and my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, peoples, Gentiles. So what's Jesus really mad about? He's mad that the people who have been given his name have used his name to profit for themselves and that the people who they ought to be having mercy on because they're ignorant and blind, well, they've actually pushed them away. Don't come near. So Jesus wants his house to be a house of prayer and his own prayer is a, a bit of a prayer of wrath because remember what he did with the fig tree. There's no fruit. A lot of green, but no fruit. What good is it? Hmm? He calls it also a den of robbers. That's from Jeremiah. And remember, Jeremiah, what does he precede? He's right before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And we've seen this already from Jesus. I've mentioned Jeremiah in the last couple of weeks, that Jesus is, is in the Jeremiah time. He's doing the Jeremiah job. He's going to be the prophet in Jerusalem who lives through the destruction of Jerusalem by, after prophesying it. And the big difference is he's going to be thrown into a pit. Jeremiah is thrown into a well. Jesus is thrown into a pit, dead. Jeremiah goes into a well. He's almost dead. He comes out. Jesus goes into the pit, dead. He comes out. That's the difference. The words still come true. The city still gets destroyed. Because rather than be a house of prayer, it's a den of robbers. What's a robber? What's a thief? 
And while indeed a thief is someone who breaks into your house when you're not there to take stuff or picks your pocket, I'd say anyone who sells you something and the fine print says, well, it doesn't really do that, whatever they told you it was going to do, but the fine print says, yeah, we don't know. I call that person a thief. A thief is someone who just takes what doesn't belong to him. Or we can maybe make this even more clear. A thief is someone who he sees you as a chance for him to get better and greater for himself. And so his engagement with you is going to be all about him. He's going to steal your time. He's going to steal your heart. He's going to steal your mind. If he can, he'll steal your money at some point because they get bad enough. But there's different levels of this thievery. And it's about I profit, you lose. Which is, again... (laughs) Where we live, is it not? It's the water we drink as Americans. So, I profit, you lose. Den of thieves, it shouldn't be this way. I want the people to pray. I want not just Jews. I want Jews and pagans. I want the pagans to become Israelites by the name of Jesus. And that's, that's what he's here to do. Verse 18, but the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. So, again, they've got hundreds of people and a Roman guard, and they won't go just arrest him because there's a mob. It's even bigger. And Jesus isn't really so concerned about the mob. He's planning to die. He knows they're going to do it. It's just, just see how, what happens in darkness and what happens in light. That's the key. Who's in darkness? Who's in light? As they go out, verse 20, they passed by in the morning. Let's go in, I should say. This is Tuesday. They, they saw the fig tree wither away to its roots. And if you've got a bad leaf, it might just be a caterpillar. You've got a whole lot of bad leaves, roots probably aren't doing so good either. So root goes first, usually. Right? And certainly did here. And so when he is going to destroy Jerusalem, what can you learn from this? Well, the root wasn't there. What's the root? With the name of Jesus, the word of God. Didn't they have all the sacrifices? Yes, but they didn't believe it. And that's the challenge. Yeah. Peter remembers that this tree that's all withered and dry was the same one that Jesus had cursed. He says, Rabbi, teacher, look. The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus it goes on a, 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 a teaching time about how, like, what, what? You're surprised? Like, you can do this. Like, you can do this. Uh, You can do more. Again, remember I told you we don't believe these verses, right? So from here on out, we really, Lutherans, we're not so sure we believe this. Okay? Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done. Highlight it. Ponder it. Look at the context. Tell me how it's not true in some way. It means something else. The best you could do is say, well, it means not real mountains, but real big problems in your life. Okay, I don't care. Then believe that. But that's the thing where like, oh, the, 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 the charismatics, they're always trying to move mountains with their faith. You can hear them. We'll talk about it. Moving mountains. And we're like, that, that's not justification. You're justified. Yes, you're justified. So believe that when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He's listening. And if you believe it, you can know he heard it. So that, again, uh, going forward, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, 
believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, someone will say, Pastor, I was born with a withered hand. And my whole life I've prayed for my withered hand to become a real hand again, and it's never happened, so I don't believe in God because he didn't answer my prayer. And someone might say, oh, no, he said no, because it was good for you. Okay, that's fine. But I'm going to say, no, 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 he didn't say no, because all things are yes in Jesus. You don't have a fully restored hand yet. I'm going to give it to you. Just wait. Because the fact is, you can have your hand completely withered, and on the day of resurrection, it's not going to be completely withered. And you'll be able to say, thank you. So if the master asks the slave to wait a little while, to have everything he wants, isn't that a pretty good master? And, and since the master didn't really just have you as a slave, he bought you from a, a ring pit of barbaric death, made you his slave, and then his first act wasn't to say, you're my slave, he said, by the way, you're my son now. So can you hold off on all the healing till the day of resurrection while you're gone? But meanwhile, you keep asking because my answer is always yes still. And then this is where, if I can pass to you, any knowledge I've gleaned in prayer ever, it started with James saying, you do not have because you ask for it to spend it on yourself. It's a profound thought. But what does Jesus say next? And whenever you stand praying, forgive. Same answer. Pray for somebody else. See what happens. Stop making it about you. Make it about other things. And then, would you consider, as you pray for everything you want, which you should, please, in Jesus' name, start with the things you know he wants to give you, like a kind heart, and a mind full of the wisdom of the word of God, a confident hope, an unshakable faith. Like, ask for those things. Whatever you ask for, believing you have it, guess what? It's coming. And he's not waiting until the day of resurrection to give you wisdom. He'll give that one right now. He continues to do so. So the powerful claim, again, is that God the Father, in his Son, Jesus Christ, hears your every word, and the curses, well, they fall on dry ground like blood spilt. But the prayers that are blessings, praises, and thanksgivings, well, these, the angels, the archangels, and Jesus himself, he takes them all in and says, yes, hallelujah, amen, for the end and for forever, now. If you want something, ask. If you want to know how to make it good, better than great, figure out how that thing is good for everybody else. And then want that for everybody else more. Don't want the thing. Want what you see everyone else can benefit from. And ask God for that benefit. Now, we've been doing this here at St. Paul. When I got here, things were dark. Huh? And now, the world's pretty dark, but I feel like it's kind of light inside St. Paul Lutheran Church. So keep praying. I know you've been doing it. Let's take hold of these verses. Let's believe that the salt that God gives us is our voices. 
the light that he gives us that shines within is his word on our voices. So salt and light we are. When raising voices in song, we speak what God has clearly said. Of course, there are, there are many ways that we do that here at St. Paul. Uh, but the height of it is as we gather around this meal, where it sure looks like bread and wine, doesn't it? Well, you were blind, but now you see.